This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Nam. And I'm Jamal Dejani. Jamal, we have a great show today. We're going to devote the show today to the controversy surrounding Kenneth Roth, the former executive director and co-founder of Human Rights Watch, who recently was denied a fellowship opportunity at Harvard University. Uh, as you know, Kenneth Roth was the former executive director. He was there for 30 years. We're going to be discussing your interview with Kenneth Roth and Dean Elmendorf of Hayward Carr Center for Human Rights Policy, his decision to rescind the fellowship offer because of HRW and Kenneth Roth's position on Israel. But I understand that before we get to the interview, you have some breaking news about that. Well, uh, we've had the interview, Just uh, I caught up with Kenneth uh, Roth when he was in Switzerland, and this was actually a day before Harvard reversed its position. And right. as you've mentioned, uh, for those who don't know, Kenneth Roth is the former executive director of Human Rights Watch for 30 years. And this is in the wake of Dean Elmendorf of Harvard's Carr Center for Human Rights policy rescinding a fellowship offered to Roth because of Human Rights uh, Watch's criticism of Israel. So there was, as you know, a and we've, we talked about this we, briefly last, last week. week. Right, right. There's a widespread uh, public outcry and condemnation of, of uh, Dean Elmendorf Act in various media outlets, human rights organizations, hundreds of Harvard affiliates, as well as, of course, advocacy groups across the globe, not only in the United States, which resulted in Elmendorf reversing his decision and re-extending the offer to Roth. Elmendorf also issued an apology uh, attempting to justify his, what I say, very poor judgment. Yeah, and the, the to call it an apology is stretching it, Jamal. It wasn't much of an apology, to be honest. We'll get to that, but yeah, it was so, kind of a it was kind of a fake apology. Yeah, so so although Roth graciously accepted the fellowship, he made clear, and this is something what I want to say because that's something that he uh, communicated and uh, on various social media outlets and etc. And he made clear that the apology lacks transparency. Right. First, Elmendorf has yet to name those, and I'm quoting here from the interview, people who are going to see the interview next. Uh, the, when uh, Kenneth Ross talks about it, he told him because, of clo- because he rejected the fellowship because of people close to him. So we want to know. Who has, are these close people? Exactly. Who influenced his decision to initially rescind the fellowship? Secondly, Roth is aware that it was his high profile, and that's what something he wanted to communicate, that attracted the public attention, that put pressure to reverse Elmerdorf's decisions. However, he's aware, and that is going to be the subject of our discussion, that scholars and students have and will continue to face strong penalty for criticism of Israel without the same ability to rally public support. In his case, Roth and this is a quote, would like a clear statement from Harvard that they uphold academic freedom even when Israel is criticized and even when the critic is 
a student or another uh, fellow uh, or, professor, etc., or an or, organization or a funder, or or happens not to be Jewish. I mean, we're we're going to talk about the elephant in the room, and Kenneth Roth is a Jewish American, and we so can't so ha- so we have a lot to discuss, Jess. Yeah. And but first, let's watch my interview with Kenneth Roth. The campaign to censor criticism of Israel in academia and educational venues spares no one. The most recent shameful example occurred when the preeminent long-standing human rights leader, Kenneth Roth of Human Rights Watch, had a fellowship at Harvard's Carr Center for Human Rights Policy rescinded because of HRW's criticism of Israel's human rights abuses. It's hard to think of an individual who has more than Roth to offer the Carr Center, which focuses exclusively on human rights and has the motto, building a more just peaceful future through human rights research, teaching, and collaboration. But criticism of Israel appears to outweigh this. Joining us on Arab Talk this week is Kenneth Roth. He is the former executive director of Human Rights Watch, one of the world's leading international human rights organizations. During his 30 years as executive director, Human Rights Watch's budget grew from $7 million to nearly $100 million, and its staff from 60 to 550 people monitoring more than 100 countries. He's he's currently working on a book. Welcome to Arab Talk, Kenneth. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here, Joel. Shortly after you retired last year as executive director of Human Rights Watch, its director, Matthias Rees, offered you a fellowship because you are one, and I'm quoting right here, one of the most distinguished human rights leaders of our time and one of the most visible faces of the human rights movement, and you accepted. Thinking the fellowship was in place, you called Dean Elmendorf as a friendly overture. At the end of your chat, he asked you an odd question. Can you talk about that? Well, sure. Um, I mean, as you say, the... The Harvard Kennedy School's Carr Center for Human Rights Policy, you know, called me up in in April, shortly after I had announced that I would be leaving Human Rights Watch, and you know, we chatted a bit about what they actually would want from me um, as a fellow, and I agreed that it made sense. I'm writing a book; I thought it would be a very congenial place to do that. So um, everything was in place. All we needed was the approval of Dean Elmendorf of the Kennedy School, and we all assumed that that would be a complete formality. Because you know why is he, why would he stand stand in the way? I mean, he, it's just you know it's kind of a perfunctory step. So with that in mind, I called him as you noted, and you know I just assumed I was going to be there in September, and I said, well, you know since I'm going to be there soon, let's get to know each other. So we had a very pleasant half hour Zoom chat, and at the end he asked this question that you alluded to. He said, "Do you have any enemies?" Now that's a weird question to ask me because I have tons of enemies. You know, I've been spending three decades making enemies because I criticize governments as the head of Human Rights Watch, and governments don't like that. So many governments dislike me. And I mentioned to him that, you know, the Chinese government and the Russian government had personally imposed sanctions on me. I mentioned the Saudi government and the Rwandan government that have been particularly vitriolic in attacking me. But, you know, I had an inkling what he was driving at. So I said, also, the Israeli government doesn't like me. And that was the kiss of death. Because two weeks later, my friends at the car center called me up and sheepishly had to admit that the Kennedy School Dean, Almendorf, 
had vetoed my fellowship. And the reason he gave was our criticism, Human Rights Watches, and my criticism of Israel. Are you talking about, uh, I'm, I'm not sure if you're talking about uh, Professor Catherine uh, Sicking, because I've read, yes. uh, and she's a human rights scholar at the Carl Center, stated that when she asked Dean Elmendorf why he rejected your fellowship, he cited HRW's anti-Israel bias. What was her response? Well, I mean, Catherine Sinking, um, who is a very respected human rights professor at Harvard, she's affiliated with the Kennedy School, you know, she couldn't believe that Elmendorf had vetoed me. So she contacted him and said, you know, what's this about? And he was the one who told her that it was because of my criticism of, of Israel. Now, you know, it, it's this idea that we're biased is something that is promoted by this kind of, you know, collection of groups that defend Israel. And, and these groups, you know, all have something in common. They all have these, you know, deceptively neutral names. They never say, you know, we're the Israeli Partisan Society. They just say, oh, you know, we're the pro-human rights, this or that. You know, um, but the point is that they um, never criticize Israel. You know, they act as if Israel has never committed a human rights violation in the history of the world, and they attack anybody who criticizes Israel. So, you know, I'm their target number one. Human Rights Watch. They hate us. And they come after us all the time. So these groups that define bias, that you know, they, Israel never does anything wrong. Anybody who criticizes Israel is always wrong. They accuse other people of bias. And so you know, this is clearly you know where Almendorf is getting his information, and it, it's wacko that you know he cites that kind of allegation to veto a human rights fellowship for me. Well, let's go back and, and really define what is the mission of the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy at Harvard's Kennedy School. I mean, we, we really need to understand what's the mission if, if this is a, uh, a sticking point from having you on campus. What is their mission then? Well, I mean, the, the, the Carr Center examines human rights issues, how human rights are defended, you know, human rights policy issues that come up as various governments try to defend human rights of the United Nations. So it's you know a broad-based opportunity for scholars and professors to examine human rights issues of their choice. You know, there's no further limitation on that. And it is housed within the Kennedy School, which is you know, a leading public policy school looking at both domestic and foreign policy. And you know, what's what's odd here is that you know, Harvard claims that it you know, in fact, the Kennedy School claims that it welcomes controversial ideas. It believes in academic freedom. It wants, you know, vigorous debate. You know, how do you do foreign policy? You know, how do you teach foreign policy by exempting any criticism of Israel? It just, you know, it can't be done. And clearly what Dean Elmendorf has done is he has prioritized the defense of Israel over academic freedom. Now, you know, the question is, you know, why did he do this? And the only answer that he's given, which he gave to um, one of the people who was associated with the, the Carr Center, um, Matthias Reese, who is a, a professor there, he said that um, people who matter to him, who matter to Allendorf, didn't want me there. Now, who matters to him is that, is he insinuating donors? Or... Well, that's the only thing anybody can make sense of this. You know, Elmendorf personally does not have a history on Israel. 
he doesn't seem to be particularly partisan himself. Um, but if you look at this very detailed article that Michael Massing, the journalist, wrote in The Nation, right. he reveals that a number of the biggest donors to the Kennedy Center and to the Kennedy School are very pro-Israel. And so, you know, what we don't know is, you know, did Elmendorf ask these people? Did he just surmise what their views would be? We don't know. All he has said is that people who matter to him didn't want me there. And then, well, and he refuses to answer any questions. Right. Uh, so, nevertheless, Harvard is one of the most well-endowed academic institutions. I mean, this should give it autonomy to weather unpopular decisions. Don't you think so? Absolutely. In fact, Jamal, we've made precisely that point to the Harvard University president, um, Lawrence Bacow. And, you know, what we said is, you know, this looks terrible. I mean, this looks like donors are compromising intellectual independence at Harvard. You know, do you really want Harvard to send the message that if you criticize Israel, your academic career could be compromised? And so we said, look, it, you know, if anybody can resist donor pressure to uphold academic freedom, it's Harvard, the richest university in the world. Right. And, you know, I had some experience with this because when I ran Human Rights Watch, you know, there of course were donors who would like to exempt their favorite country from Human Rights Watch's scrutiny. And that just was a complete no-go. That would violate our principles that we apply human rights standards even-handedly every place. You know, we work in a hundred countries around the world, the worst offenders every place. And so I just accepted Human Rights Watch would never get money from those donors. That was the price of living up to principle. I mean you can the same thing. Yeah, I mean, you can dismiss, let's say, you know, for argument's sake, the importance uh, or the important role of money in quality education. I mean, I'm just being the devil's, uh, <laughs> you know, advocate here. But where and how can limits be set to prevent it from muzzling free speech? I mean, where is where, where do you draw the line? Yeah, I mean, Jamal, let me make two points. I mean, one is, you know, Harvard with its $50 billion endowment can certainly afford to say, okay, we're not going to take money from a particular donor who's insisting on censoring criticism of Israel. But, but you know, more broadly, it's fine for donors to say, here's money to study the Middle East, or here's money to study Latin America. You know, they could even say, here's money to study Israel, but without restricting what the scholar can say. So it's one thing to say, this is an area of inquiry. It's quite another thing to say, these are the conclusions you're allowed to draw. That would violate academic freedom, the latter. There is a considerable uh, pushback against Elmendorf. Uh, the article in the Crimson and hundreds uh, of Harvard affiliates calling for his resignation. Even Lawrence Summers, who says he despises your views on Israel, thinks Elmendorf was wrong. Do you think that this will bring any results or or change in his opinion? I hope so. I hope so. You know, I mean, Elmendorf's strategy so far seems to be just to bury his head in the sand, hope that the storm blows over before the students arrive back on campus um, next Monday from their holiday break. That's his strategy. And, you know, it's not a very smart strategy. I, this is not a a storm that seems to be going away. Um, but that's been his response so far, which is basically not to respond, not to talk to media, not to accept questions, and just hope that people forget about what he did. 
I don't think people are forgetting. You've mentioned the uh, organizations, and um, I don't know if you want to mention them by name, whatever. But I've read something like ADL came first. You know, they said that you know they're against this decision, but they uh, criticized you for insinuating that the Israel lobby had anything to do with that, or the power of. Uh, they say you you play in the hands of those who promote the trope that. Uh, that the Jewish lobby or Jewish people have a lot of influence in this country. But again, I have not used the term the Jewish lobby or the Israel lobby. Uh, I don't know for sure whether Elmendorf consulted with donors or just assumed that that's what they would want. I don't know who the donors were. You know, I don't know whether they were Jewish or anything else. So, um, you know, there's a limit to what we know here, but clearly somebody who matters to Elmendorf didn't want me there because of my criticism of Israel. That's what he said. And so that's pretty disappointing if you believe in academic freedom and believe that, you know, whoever it is who matters to him shouldn't be able to compromise academic freedom. Human Rights Watch, along with other organizations, uh, basically from the United Nations Rapporteur, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, Israel's own human rights organization, uh, Beth Salem, have all recently used the comparison of Israel with apartheid or um, South Africa. Do you think this has anything to do with this kind of circling the wagons against anyone who comes from these organizations and trying to give them a platform, like in, in such universities, like of course, like yourself in at Harvard. I mean, Jamal, I, I do think that that was a big part of the issue. And let me, if I could, just correct you on one small thing. We um, did not actually make an analogy to South Africa. This was not a historical study or a historical comparison. We made a legal analysis. So we did a very detailed factual study. We um, It was like a 200-plus page report. But we applied two international treaties. One is the UN Convention Against Apartheid. The other is the so-called Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court. Both of them define the crime against humanity of apartheid. And what we found is that you know it was an overwhelming case. Um, in fact, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, just think about the West Bank. You know, you have um, these you know massive... Israeli-only settlements where, you know, one body of law applies, where total freedom applies. And then, you know, right next door in Area C of the West Bank, you have, um, you know, Palestinians who can't even add a, a bedroom onto their house, who have to travel on bypass roads, who you know, have all kinds of restrictions in their life. It's it's a blatant double standard. And, and frankly, the only reason people have not called it apartheid earlier is because there was this inevitable answer like, oh, yeah, of course, there's oppressive discrimination in the West Bank, but don't worry, there's the peace process. And when we have peace, all this will go away. And to be honest, we got tired of that excuse because it was no longer credible. You know, what peace process? The peace process is totally moribund. The, the new far-right Netanyahu government is doing everything it can to undermine any possibility of ever having a Palestinian state. So we say, look at Whatever you know, the future may bring, fine. But we're going to analyze reality today, and in that reality today, that one-state reality, as Israelis refer to it, there is no question that there is oppressive discrimination holding Palestinians down. That is apartheid. So, what's happening on 
the political level, let's take it there uh, from our own Congress, your own congressman or congresswoman, uh, those who support or, you know, support freedom of speech, the, um, you know, our First Amendment. Have you heard anything in your support aside from, I know a lot of people from academia, professors, uh, human rights advocates are, you know, are shocked by this uh, action by Harvard. You know, I have, I mean, I've received overwhelming support from, you know, fellow human rights activists, from students, from professors, from journalists, you know, from many, many people. Um, obviously, I'm being attached too. Um, there are a number of, you know, the classic partisan Israel government defenders, no matter what, who are attacking me. But overwhelming the response has been what Harvard did is an outrage. It's such a violation of academic freedom. And you know the point that I've been making is, I this is not something that is just about me. You know, I, I've I've had a good career. Um, I still have plenty of opportunities. I have a good future ahead of me. This is not impeding me seriously. What I worry about is the signal that Harvard is sending to younger academics and scholars, because you know if this if they can do this to me, you know, d despite my visibility. What are they going to do to people who are kind of new in their career, just getting started? The message is, don't you dare criticize Israel or your career is going to be stymied. And that is a horrible message for Harvard to be sending. I don't think Dean Elmendorf of the Kennedy School is capable of changing his mind on this. I think he's absolutely paralyzed. You know, his head is going to stay in the sand as long as possible, which is why we really are looking to the Harvard president, Lawrence Bacow, to do the right thing here and to reaffirm that Harvard does not stand for possibly donor-driven censorship of Israel, but rather it stands, or censorship criticism of Israel, I should say, but rather Harvard stands for academic freedom. And it puts academic freedom above whatever external influence might have been exerted on Dean Elmendorf. What message does this send? I mean, you mentioned you know, the message he's sending to um, young academics and so forth, but what message does this send to students, students at Harvard University and other college campuses, students who want to study, go to law school, for example, and study about the Constitution. And what, what message is he sending to them? Well, the message is you better not criticize Israel or bad things may happen to you. You know, and, and what kind of message is that? I mean, that's a, it's a disastrous message to send. And, you know, as I was saying, if anybody can afford to uphold principle, you know, to resist possible donor pressure, it's super rich Harvard. So, you know, how is, you know, a tiny college in the middle of nowhere going to resist this kind of pressure if Harvard can't resist this pressure? So here we have, you know, the spotlight is on Harvard. This is a teachable moment. Is Harvard going to teach us that censorship of criticism of Israel prevails, or is it going to teach us that academic freedom and intellectual independence prevails? We don't know. It's up to the Harvard president, Lawrence Bacow, to tell us. What is next for you, and what is the subject of uh, of the book that you are working on? Well, I'm I'm actively writing a book this year, and what I'm doing is really exploring how does a relatively small group of people, Human Rights Watch, move governments around the world, and I'm explaining the methodology, taking each element, talking about the strategy behind it, and then illustrating it with um, my experiences and the experiences of my colleagues. 
So, I mean, I mean, you started writing this book, but now that you have this thing happen to you, <laughs> I mean, is that you're going to pivot somehow to include your own personal experience, right? Well, I mean, my personal experience is in the book anyhow, but um, yes, this experience with Harvard is something I've got to add to the book, no question about it. Kenneth Roth, uh, thank you for coming on Arab Talk. Thank you very much for having me. It's my pleasure. That's the voice and the face of Kenneth Roth, former executive director and co-founder of Human Rights Watch, talking about the the kind of outrageous decision by Dean Elmendorf at Harvard to rescind his fellowship offer. That interview, which is a great interview, Jamal, happened you know prior to the uh, announcement of the reversal of Dean Elmendorf's decision to rescind that offer to Kenneth Roth. The fellowship has been reoffered to him. Uh, he has great, graciously accepted. But, you know, this is the tip of the iceberg of the largest of a larger problem, as we know, which Kenneth Roth happened to get caught up into the the kind of lack of transparency, the influence of pro-Israel funders and donors at the highest level in the academy to put pressure on universities like Harvard and other universities, which we're going to talk about to deny people the opportunity who are scholars and internationally recognized to offer opinions, critical opinions about the apartheid state of Israel. And Kenneth Roth is, uh, you know, he's a giant in the human rights community, Jamal. We, we all know that. And uh, so my question for you, were it not for Kenneth Roth, given his standing, and he alludes to this in his social media post, were it not for his standing in the international community, do you think Elmendorf and Harvard would have backed down? Absolutely not. And we've seen examples, and we'll talk to, about the examples, but let me first summarize the points that came out from this interview, Jess, which are very important, and actually through uh, follow-up discussions and, and, and uh, statements by uh, yeah. Kenneth Roth, Firstly, Elmendorf's apology, and I repeat, or whatever explanation, it was disingenuous and opaque in many aspects. I've uh, actually posted uh, his apology or parts right. of his apology on, on Twitter. He does not, again, name the people close to him who influenced his initial decision. It was like a half apology, in my opinion. I don't he, even, very, think, it I don't even think it was... I don't think it was even a half apology. Well, was... you know, he was forced by the president of Harvard University and all that pressure. I mean, I'm, I'm actually surprised that he still has a job, to tell you the truth. And we'll talk about that. Secondly, he initially said that the fellowship decisions are based, and this is from, again, from Kenneth Roth, Roth himself and others, are based on the potential contribution of the fellow to the university, as though to question Roth's stature, you know. However, in his apology, Elmendorf states that when re-extending the fellow to Roth, that, and I'm quoting, I hope that our community will be able to benefit from his deep experience in a wide range of human rights issues. So it, it is apparent that Roth's value as a fellow is and always uh, indisputable. Also, if bias, which he used before, also if bias towards Israel by HRW was the initial concern, a professor just, and this is what Roth said, a professor at the Carr Center initially, initially showed Elmendorf's data based 
on objective analysis of Human Rights Watch vis-a-vis all other organizations, including right. the U.S. State Department, and it demonstrated that Human Rights Watch criticism of Israel ranked in the average. Yet Almendorf was adamant about his decision when she was like, uh, you know, asking him to to change his mind. He said, "No, I made up my mind, etc." So he's either completely out of touch with what the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy purpose, or he's had a role as gatekeeper to shut down criticism of Israel for whatever reasons, right? I think that's exactly right, Jamal. And I think that uh, this points to the, uh, not just the lack of transparency in the, in the opacity and opaqueness of the decision that Elmendorf made, but it really speaks to the lack of independence he has as a dean at Harvard. That's why make- That's why the question is, even though like people like now to celebrate and we'll talk about it, and, and maybe Harvard is, is just want to bury the hatchet and move on. Well, we're I don't not going to move on. We're no, not going to move on. I don't think the pe- people, students, academia at large, journalists, etc., should not move on because this person should not be entrusted with such an important role of being a chair of a human rights uh, position in academia. I mean, I mean, well, he actually, Elmendorf actually has a very powerful position yes. at Harvard because he's the dean. He's the dean. That's why so he should he, be either fired or resign. I mean, well, but that's my feeling because he needs to be fired or he has to resign because his authority, his uh, stature, his ability to kind of be independent and make uh, academic decisions based on scholarship and not donor influence is really lacking. Now, you know, in Elmendorf's uh, so-called apology, I'm going to call it a so-called apology because I don't believe it was apology. He said donors had no influence on his decision making. We know that's a complete, completely bogus thing because he's failed to identify who these close people are that helped him make the decision about Elmendorf. The other thing that needs to be clear about Elmendorf's decision, the way his rescission, his second decision to bring uh, Kenneth Roth back, is that he made some sort of fluffy statement about, well, I decided to consult with faculty, and after I talked to faculty, I decided to change my mind. Completely bogus. Well, faculty came to him, and that's, I gave you an example. Someone, I mean, uh, a professor came to him and showed him data. She put whole charts on the wall explaining to him that his decision had no uh, factual basis. Factual basis. And yet he said, no, I've made up my mind, and and that's it. He basically a bit more than he was able to chew and it blew up in his face and that's, that's right why. it blew up in his face and you know i'm sorry to keep going back to this point jamal but were it were were it not for kenneth roth and who he is and what he represents i'm not sure any other academic who who went through the same position would be would have this position returned. I mean, we have the infamous case of Stephen Salida, obviously. Yeah, we're gonna go. We're gonna go. We're gonna go down the list uh, one by one. And 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 you're absolutely right. Yes, it it it's a pos- It's positive to have the pressure of the pro-Israel lobby in educational forums exposed with a high-profile story like Roth's. But this is not new it's news, not over. and it's not and, over. And we're going to revisit some 
past instances where the others in academia have been attacked or seen their professional standing jeopardized and ruined for criticizing Israel and or supporting Palestinians suffering ongoing ethnic cleansing. Let's start actually with last week's interview. We had Dr. Rabab Abdel Hadi just exactly. And ongoing marginalization and complete lack of support for her during virulent hate campaign against her when the campus was basically papered with hate inciting posters and you should be familiar with these posters yeah because i was on one i i was (laughs) if you remember i was on one of those yes targeting her and other professors and students okay and nothing happened by um, campus watch and by horowitz yeah and then uh, then a, a, a lawsuit by the lawfare project and uh, San Francisco State University is bending to the will of Zionist organizations to frame criticism of Israel as identity racism. This is what this is the conclusion. This is what President Mahoney at San Francisco State University, instead of instead of basically protecting her own professor and 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 the head of Ahmed, uh, basically she bowed to pressure, conducted or had actually Hillel conduct this, uh, this study to say that uh, the, the real issues on campus uh, are and basically are framed in anti-Semitism, N- not talking about, uh, you know, anti-Arab, anti or Islamophobia or, or attacks on professors. That's how she framed it. Well, that's right, Jamal. And we we have interviewed Professor Abdul Hadi, you know, I don't know, multiple times over the years. We've been following the trajectory of the hate that's been leveled against her, the 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 kind of um racism and Islamophobia that have been leveled against her by the presidents, by three presidents now at San Francisco State. Let's let's be clear. Since Professor Abdul Hadi has been hired at San Francisco State, there have been three presidents. They've come and gone. The current one, President Mahoney, continues. I would say, I mean, you, you and I have, have known the previous presidents and we've worked somewhat closely with them. We kind of know them. Mahoney is actually the worst in some ways of all the previous presidents of San Francisco State who have bowed to pressure, who have not protected faculty like Professor Abdul Hadi and have basically thrown Professor Abdul Hadi under the bus multiple times because of this uh, pro-Israel bias and pressure that she has received. She's even gone against her own faculty, the own her own faculty at San Francisco State. Twice. Twice have voted and written and had resolutions uh, supporting Professor Abdul Hadi, and uh, she has ignored them and rejected these reports from her own faculty and faculty senate. So this, I mean, it's great about Kenneth Roth, but this list that we're going to go through right now, it, it just so I, happens that all, the, you know, the, the first number of people on this list happen to be academics and Palestinian academics who don't have the same protection. But Professor Abdul Hadi's case is among the most egregious. Well, uh, uh, President Mahoney is a historian. I mean, do you think, I have a question Selective. for you. Do you think that she would learn from history and basically study what happened at Harvard University so she wouldn't repeat 
you know, because sooner or later, the truth will come out and all these talks in the uh, back rooms and, 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 and meetings, etc. will somebody will, will unravel all these back, back room well, talks yes. and meetings. And then she will find herself in a position to having to apologize and, and basically... Well, I think I think President Explain Mahoney. Should, I, I actually think President Mahoney should resign, and I think that's eventually what's going to happen because her lack of transparency, the opaqueness with which she carries out these actions, her rejection of the faculty, and here's the other thing: the difference between Harvard and San Francisco State is that San Francisco State is a public university, public, and so the you know, being able to go into the records and the communications that President Mahoney has had with anybody is up for public Freedom of Information Act, uh, you know, access. So I share with you the same kind of notion that eventually the truth will come out. Doesn't matter that she's a historian, she's a selective historian, but she's done damage to the concept of academic freedom. She's attacked Professor Abdul Hadi directly and indirectly. And this it's kind of ironic, right, when Harvard is able to reverse a decision, but it seems like President Mahoney at San Francisco State is digging in her heels. I would, I would say digging in her heels. I think she's paralyzed. I think she's paralyzed with fear. That's what her major issue. But anyway, we'll, we'll have we'll, we'll, more we'll discussions have, about right. this. The second uh, story we, we want to highlight is the case of Stephen, Stephen Salaita, uh, who had his 2014, this is how all the stories, time flies, appointment to begin a professorship in American Indian Studies at the University of Illinois abruptly canceled after he tweeted, just a tweet, criticism of Israel's thousands of airstrikes against Gaza that year. It was discovered in a lawsuit that Chancellor Phyllis Wise was pressured by wealthy donors to dismiss Salaita. Salaita prevailed in his lawsuit, but was not uh, reinstated. Right, and, and this and, is the and this is the criminality, the moral abjectness of the whole Stephen Salaita situation. Jamal, they proved donor, inf- and again another public university. They proved the undue influence of pro-Israel uh, donors on the actions of the president, and yet it wasn't enough to have that exposed that moral abjectness exposed Jamal that it was enough to have Stephen Salida's position uh you know re, you know re, restored to him and he and I I cuz I know Steve Stephen you know well and have followed had his him on career, the show yeah multiple times and I'll tell you and I'll tell you he continues to suffer because of this decision that was 8 and 9 years ago that had basically has ruined his career. He got a little settlement for it, but it has never made up for his ability to be in the academy, to be a you know a, a respected scholar, which he is. But uh, this this thing has followed him for the entirety of his life and caused him harm. Okay, moving on to another story. In 2007, just uh, Dr. Nadia Abdel Hajj, who is a, a of Palestinian right. descent and won many awards and grants, including a Fulbright scholarship and fellowships at Harvard and the Institute of uh, at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, right? And uh, you know, uh, she had a job. Uh, 
offer at um, Barnard, uh, and, and Barnard approved her um, tenureship uh, officially and forwarded its recommendation. For those who don't know, Barnard used to do, used to be independent uh, from Columbia University. It was kind of the women's uh, college at college, the time, right. and now it's right. part of Columbia University. So after after that, Barnard sent her uh, her approval for tenureship to Columbia University uh, for because Columbia has has the final stay. But because she had a book, it's called Facts on the Ground: Archaeological Practice and Territorial Self Fashioning in Israeli Society. Made her this book made her a target to oppose to oppose her tenure by pro-Zionists who claimed her findings were anti-Semitic. <laughs> she became the object of dueling online petitions and was exposed to personal and professional attacks. That's Jamal, I, you know, I, 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 and I, I know Professor uh, Al-Hajj also, and she's an extraordinary scholar, an extraordinary academic, impeccable credentials her phd thesis which is the you know which was turned into that book is an internationally acclaimed piece of scholarship which gets you know um cited you know all the time and it continues to be and she was brutally assaulted this is 2007 as you mentioned she was brutally assaulted and her attacks now luckily she was able to survive she did get tenure eventually but the personal attacks that she that were leveled against her and the harm that it caused her both professionally and personally were were unspeakable i mean the kind of attacks that she that she that she had to withstand now there's a common thread with all three of these uh, reminders that we're, we're, we're telling our viewers and listeners about Jamal, they seem to have a common thread. They have a common thread and, it, and, and universities or university administrations succumb to these groups instead of protecting basically their faculty. I mean, this is the crazy thing. Even when they are vindicated, it takes time and months. And But and sometimes even being vindicated doesn't help. There's no, damage. No, and it comes at, at a major expense. Another case we're going to talk about, Jess, and this is another guest we've had on the show, is Norman Finkelstein. Right. DePaul University, if you recall, again, that's actually in 2007, denied Dr. Norman Finkelstein tenure and promotion to associate professor. That's in 2007. One of the little known facts or academic, I would say, trans, uh, uh, transgressions just uh, in the Finkelstein case was when Patrick Callahan, who has served three times as Department of Political Science Chair, solicited, I'm repeating that word, solicited, a 50-page document from your favorite person, Alan Dorshowitz, <laughs> that denounced, denounced Finkelstein's scholarship all because of Finkelstein's position on Israel. Now, remember, I mean, he went to a third party. It wasn't even someone from DePaul University, and, and he knew about the animosity between Finkelstein and Dershowitz because Finkelstein has embarrassed Dershowitz on many on multiple occasions, occasions. On multiple, multiple occasions. occasions. So he had him submit a 50 Page, I would I call diatribe. You have to read it. I mean, we don't have the time to discuss it. And 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 that played a major role in denying him tenureship. It's it's 
was outrageous, Jermon. Again, an individual whose scholarship has been internationally cited, um, well-recognized, well-respected. And I think your point is really worth taking very seriously. Usually when there are tenure considerations, the tenure committee is within the university. It's unusual, rare, and highly, highly suspect to invite someone who's not even in the field. I mean, Dershowitz is an attorney, Finkelstein's an historian. You have this individual solicit an, an opinion from someone outside the university who's not even in the area of expertise where the scholarship is being evaluated. So it's outrageous at many, many, many levels. That's so, because that's because Fink, Finkelstein tore Alan Dershowitz's book, the, the Case for Israel, to he, shreds. He, he, he tore it apart. But he tore it apart. It wasn't an ad hominem attack. It wasn't an attack on Dershowitz. It was a careful, scholarly attack on the facts of the book, which were clearly lacking. Think, uh, I mean, Dershowitz, on the other hand, just viciously attacked Finkelstein. They were personal attacks. These were not scholarly attacks or criticism. So this is this 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 kind of trajectory that we're talking about. I mean, it's somewhat recent history from 2007 on Jamal. What's kind of interesting, and we've been talking about this, you know, kind of historical arc that we're on right now, because you know, arguably, Harvard is you know one of the top top universities in the country, if not the world. And for this decision to be reversed now, I mean, I don't want to get too optimistic about it because I think, you know, Kenneth Roth is the special case. Um, but I think, as I've said multiple times on the show before, because the pro-Israel forces have overextended their hand again, again, have overplayed it again, it's actually doing the opposite of what they had intended. It's actually exposing the kind of vicious, kind of uh, immoral, uh, unethical attacks that pro-Israel donors and advocates have on the academy in attacking free speech and academic freedom. And I think this opens the door. This is why I think the Kenneth Roth story, even though Elmendorf and Harvard want to bury it now, it, it should not be over by any stretch of the imagination. No, and then we'll, we'll mention one. Of course, there are a lot of uh, more examples, but I want to mention another example because this is not exclusive uh, to inst institutes of higher education. We had Javier Davila as a guest last year on Arab Talk, if you recall, Jess. Right. And Javier, Javier Davila is a student equity program advisor for the Toronto District oh, that's School right. Board. That's he, right. He regularly shares resources about a wide range of issues related to the scope of his work with educators and community members. Through an opt-in mailer, he, ha uh, he has been sending out over the past 12 years. In June of 2021, Mr. Davila was put on home assignment from his position pending investigation into materials he shared in his mail outs on May 16 and May 19. These materials explain the history and context of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, reaffirming that anti-Semitism is very violent and intolerable, but explaining that it should not be conflated with legitimate criticism of Israeli policy. Of course, he got reinstated in July 2021 without discipline. Right. Uh, there was a groundswell of support for him amongst fellow educators, students, as well as Jewish parents who, in their petition, stated that there was nothing anti-Semitic in the materials the villa had shared. 
But again, he had to suffer and 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 be put on home whatever assignment. Right. And people remember, you know, as you know, people remember the negative thing and he was attacked and he received hundreds of hate mail, emails, but, and so and so forth. You know, I mean, this, Jamal, this story keeps repeating itself, Jess. But Jamal, on the other side of my optimism, cautious optimism, this is the whole intention of the pro-Israel uh, lobby and the pro-Israel uh, donor and the pro-Israel groups that put pressure on the academy to not criticize this apartheid state. What they do is that even though they know they may lose, they put such enormous resources and public humiliation and effort, time, energy, and money against these individuals that even if these individuals prevail, as Kenneth Roth has, as Devella has, as uh, Professor Al-Hajj has, it's still the emotional and personal cost that it puts on the person and the amount of fear that it generates in the larger space of ac academic freedom in the academy, their intention is to cast a pall and to put anxiety in all academics who take that step of being honest, who take that step of using scholarship to point out uh, all of the, you know, what, what it's like to, to, to kind of function as an apartheid state. We're really talking about criticism of an apartheid state. And so, you know, the intention is a greater one than just isolating and having one person be silenced, Jamal. I think it's part of a larger plan to create this anxiety about speaking truth and about I would doing say anxiety and intimidation. It's not yeah, just absolutely. anxiety. Absolutely. Uh, you're absolutely right. It is intimidating. You have to have thick skin, Jamal, in the academy to engage in any activity that involves criticism of the apartheid state. The same wasn't true with apartheid South Africa. I mean, we were celebrating the kind of coalescing of uh, the academy and activist groups during the, you know, prevailing of the, dis you know, dismantling of apartheid South Africa. It's a different story now, right? Well, the question is, why is Israel getting exceptionalist treatment and that it's time for there to be institutional accountability about who is protecting the critical discourse and academic freedom without well, we're, exceptions. We're calling that now on Arab Talk, Jamal. We're asking for Harvard University to have either Elmendorf resign or a, have him, or a hearing or for him to disclose who his these close confidence, people who are close to him that influenced his decision. I want to see what went into his decision to bar, to rescind this fellowship offer to Kenneth Roth. You've been listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco, 89.5 FM. Go to our website, arabtalkradio.com, to download the latest shows, and we'll speak to you next week. We'll see you next week.